Okay, it is uh, Wednesday, November the 9th. What do you say we get started? We haven't done these for a while. Got a lot to talk about. Yes, we do. A lot of stuff going on in the world. So let's talk a little bit about the election. Uh, what do you think the uh, end result is going to be with uh, DeSantis? Well, he, I, th- I think in a case of uh, kind of issues going on in the world, state, international, obviously the whole country, lots of economic, military, foreign policy, just everything involved. I think in general, at least among his constituents in the, in the state that he currently governs, it's obvious that you know there may be a lot of detractors in the media, but people trust his leadership thus far, and he trounced his opponent, a former governor of the state, by as much as 20 points in some counties, which is just absolutely crazy. For, for modern elections, anyway. Well, the fact that he uh, won Miami as strongly as he did. Yeah, I think Miami it was like 60,000 just... votes when, last I saw, something like that. You know, even Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who was the Democratic Committee chairman, chairwoman under uh, Clinton, she did not crack 60%, and her district is... As blue as blue can be. Very advantageous. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, I guess it's just, in general, people vote down ballots, but in cases of, like, her district, I, I would like to see a district breakdown. I didn't dig into those type of uh, specifics, but I'm curious what it what it looks like in there. I'm, there's a huge amount of crossover in, in some of these districts. There just has to be. Otherwise, you can't. you don't get these kinds of swings. Um, it's impressive, but I guess it, it, to me it's, it comes as kind of obvious because um, DeSantis so far, um, everybody do, I'm sure everybody has their own criticism of every politician that's ever been in office, but thus far he is playing the game as well as you can given the circumstances, and he seems to be delivering on most of the stuff he says he's going to deliver on. And, you know, not to go too deeply into any of the policies, I don't want to anyway, I think it's important that, you know, people see that. And he's kind of not... Some people will say it's a, an extremist position that he's, he's, he's doing on certain things, but I, I, I don't even think that matters at this point. People just see that he has some amount of quality leadership and he goes against the grain when it matters, and that's enough for a lot of people. Well, the hurricane that struck the uh, Fort Myers area, I will tell you, I was incredibly impressed with him in this regard, he was factual, he was uh, punctual, he was uh, tight-lipped, he, he just delivered, talked, and moved on. And you, you just don't get that. You, you usually get this warm and fuzzy, oh, I feel your pain, and, and you know, you always do the same thing. You find uh, Hill Rat Hilda, who's got a trailer, you hug her, you tell everybody how horrible it is, we're going to do everything, but he actually was out there uh, didn't want to get in the way. What we got to do? Let's get going. And and you know, obviously, there will always be complaints by somebody that you know they didn't get their home or the road rebuilt within the next six months. We know that. You know, oh so yeah, that's every every point. time. Yep. And and what's amazing is that you know, and I have no problem saying this that you have people saying, well, those people down there are Republican and rich, and they're getting more resources in other places. You know. We, we should have reparations for uh, 
Katrina because they didn't get the right reparation. I mean, it is. I, I saw within. Did you d- see that? I, yeah, I've seen all kinds of crazy, crazy stuff. But I saw something interesting is within like hours of this happening, the online, you know, troll farms were obviously activated and you had people going crazy for, oh, we're giving all this money to Ukraine or whatever. And we're not giving it to these poor people in South Florida. It's just, the, you know, the standard stuff just kept popping up. It was just ridiculous. It's like FEMA activated their emergency fund. The state of Florida activated their emergency management funds. Like, it, it, it's going to be fine. But, like, all this stuff moves at the pace of government, which is slow. You know, and anyway, I just thought it was interesting because immediately the partisan hacks and, and, uh, whatnot immediately activated to blame that this is somehow bad because we're the people of South Florida wouldn't be getting what they need because we're giving money to other things as if that has ever happened. Well, it's like education. There was a a guy who was the um, opinion editor, whatever Brad's title was at the Ocala star banner. I can't stand him, never could stand him. And I saw him recently and I again, couldn't stand him. He looked at me and I looked at him. (laughs) I can't stand a guy. Um, and I remember him saying, we had a debate, literally, we were at the, uh, we were both on the, the community, the public policy institute for the, the local college. And he made a comment about there was never enough money for education. And no, there isn't. <laughs> and I said, that's, that's the problem. I said, your wife is a, is a teacher. There's never enough money. If you paid her $500,000 a year and every children had, uh, you know, gold-plated desks, it would still not be enough money. No, nope, never will be. That's the thing. Is like, if I think people don't really understand this, and, and, you know, in general, this translates perfectly to what's going on in the public markets, is look at all these companies who have existed in zero-interest rate environments with infinite free money. Has that created better companies? No. Not at all. You have absolutely atrocious... Uh, organizations that are run hideously, you know, Russian, Russian style government leadership in Silicon Valley companies that are wiping out trillions of dollars of wealth because it turns out it was all, it was all BS. Because you know, look at, look at it's my, not real. Yeah. I mean, look at a look. I mean, meta is like the perfect example, not because there aren't better examples that are more crazy and extreme, but they're a perfect example because they were so big and they were at, you know, at one point, I think was sec- second or third uh, highest valued company in the in the country, American company. Um, you know, they they've lost like what somewhere between seventy and eighty percent of the entire company's value in the past year. If that's not an implosion, I don't I don't know what is. And you know, the problem is is it's run by a little dictator who has no accountability. Because that you can have eight million share shareholders out there, and they can have, you know, they can be really mad. They can shake their their little gavels around, and oh, we're so mad that things aren't going our way. But Mark Zuckerberg is the only one that anybody at the company ha- beholds to. He appoints all the people to all the committees. He appoints the boards of directors. He controls everything that goes on at that company. So you have a basically, it's a, it's no different than like cryptocurrency. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a stock that's based on the performance of the company, and they have to do follow reporting guidelines. But at the end of the day, like the control of the company is down to the whims of one man, and the ownership of the stock does not mean that you can do or have an influence on anything. 
And, you know, oh, wow. Uh, turns out his, the world that he lives in is way different than the world that we all live in. But then, you know, to translate that into these other companies like Lyft and, uh, you know, tons of software companies, you know, they live, they've lived in this environment with effectively infinite free money uh, in the grand scheme of things. And now that there's cash crunch and now that, oh, we have to actually perform and, you know, the investors in these companies still are, for the most part, pretty cash flush, but they're not willing to deploy it as freely. Oh, no. They actually have to perform for the first time in their lives and they can't because they don't have, they're not running good ships. They're running ships based off of hopes and dreams and, you know, next year, you know, many quarters into the future instead of these very, I would call, just kind of uh, rigid old-fashioned companies that are like, uh, we make a product, this is our profit margin, and this is how much money we made, and if we don't make it, then we fire people or move on or change direction, you know? Well, you know, like, one of the there, things... You can take that to an extreme, obviously, GE being a perfect example, oh, of performing Welch. for the next quarter. Yeah. But Silicon Valley, the tech companies of, of our era, of the past, you know, since the last tech bubble are hilarious because they've gone the other direction where, you know, there's no performance metric that can't be underperformed. There's no performance metric that can't be put off to next quarter. And, you know, you got Amazon who famously is like, Oh, we can turn on the profit machine anytime we want. Well, that way they've proven that's not true. Like they can sell, $500 billion a quarter in, in goods, they're still going to lose money. The only place they make any serious money is in Amazon Web Services. And and that's under challenge now. To the chagrin of, of a lot of people, myself included, I mean, I wish they'd spin that out because that, that is a good business. That's a business that, I mean, I, I it's, it's a fantastic business. There's no question. Let's, let's go back to a couple of things. But, I but the point being is just that hard times breed more efficient operations and whatever. And that's, that's exactly the whole point. Well, the, the phrase hard times breed hard men, good times breed weak men. And that's true because for example, uh, I like the overwhelming majority of my clients, our clients, because when I say things like, I don't get it. Do you, do you remember? I mean, you know, I hate when I do this because you're not a, you're not a young man anymore. I'm not a young man, definitely. But do you remember when I was doing all the seminars and workshops uh, in the pre-2008 real estate debacle and I was saying, I don't get it? Yes, I do. I, I, I used to tell people, what are, what's this word tranche? I mean, I know what that means. Don't get me wrong. But I used to, I used to say, see, when I do public talks, I do things called a shaggy dog. It's the way I talk. I kind of wiggle and waggle and eventually I get there. I want people to kind of understand where I'm going. And then eventually I tie it all together. And so I would talk about, you know, instead of Sir Anthony wrote a grand stallion, I'll do, you know, Tony wrote a pony. So tranche, why don't we just say it? These are, these are segmented blocks of mortgages. And what happens if a few of them begin to fall apart? And I talked about securitization. So if you can follow a mirror, you're getting a mortgage. Well, and I've been around the block more than a few times. You know, I bought my first house, what, 21? I mean, the point being is you just can't give money to people to buy a house when they're too damn lazy to pick up the beer cans in their yard 
or out of the back of their truck, if you know what I mean. Now, let me just run with this for a second. Some things are just simple common sense. Cryptocurrency. What the hell? Where's the value derived from? That's the question I've been asking for years. I mean, I, I, I did a lot of stuff involving cryptocurrency in the early days. And you made and, money, and you were a miner. Yeah, and I, I, I've, I've, I'm totally honest about it. I was involved in not anything special, but, you know, uh, I was involved in it when it was early. Right. And made You some came money. to me and you said, hey, yeah. Dad, yada, 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 this is what's going to go. We set up a computer system and we did mining. Yeah, we did some mining yeah. and, and whatever. But the reality is, is, you know, I took a good hard look at this and I was like, it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't see this having any real future. It literally is just, it's fake. It's, oh, wow, I made internet points. Okay, great. Any, any company can do that. And the reality is, is I didn't see the future that it's gotten to now. I didn't see this more general acceptance of it. And I just sold out, made a decent amount of money, but like it's, I was done. Like I'm just, I, it's something I didn't want to worry about. It doesn't make any sense remember, to I me. I remember I came to you and said, Paul, I don't understand the difference between cryptocurrency and Disney dollars. When I was a kid, we bought Disney dollars. It's the same thing. I didn't get it. It's the same thing. The only thing that has propped up the crypto markets, whatever, you know, and I'm saying crypto in general, I understand. You have your Bitcoin, you've got your Ethereum, you've got your other coins, or as some people lovingly call them, shit coins, because they literally are. They're valueless pieces of crap that are only valued because of speculation. Beanie Babies are more valuable because at least they're real. They're not just a figment. They're just not digital bits that you're wasting resources on. Um, you know, you've got your NFTs and all your smart contracts and all that fancy stuff. I mean, I like I understand it all. But the problem is, is there's no real value there. Like all of the magic technology, uh, I've got a couple people that I know in Silicon Valley who work at these tech startups and stuff. And, and all of us kind of agree on this, that it's a, it's, it's all pretty dumb at the end of the day. <laughs> and we all agree. And we, and we joke about it every now and then, um, because validation Paulie, because there's no, every, the, the biggest, most involved crypto person that you come across these days online or in person or whatever, they're totally blindsided when you tell them that, no, your technology is not amazing and new. It's just a re-implementation of something that's existed for dozens or even potentially hundreds of years. Just It's just a new way. Your way is just a new way of doing what everybody else has been doing. A good example is, oh, wow, it's a public, public ledger technology. It's going to change the world. It's like I, you could do this with way less energy in many other ways, and no, it wouldn't be... I wonder if anybody's ever looked at a, a, a physical dollar bill, if anybody has, you know, cash, real yeah. dollars. There's a there's a number. There's a yeah. sequencing. <laughs> yeah. There's a I, I, rem number. I remember, we, well, just before I forget this, because I will, we were out at a networking event, and it was out in the causeway, and uh, it was at a place called Godfrey's out there. And this woman comes up, and she's probably 10, 15 years younger than me, or maybe she was my age. I'm terrible at ages. And she was just telling everybody about cryptocurrency, and, boy, she – I don't know what she was selling. I, I literally don't know. I think she was selling, oh, buy my book or help me, you know, pay me to show you how to make. And she was, oh, I'm, I've made millions and millions in cryptocurrency. I'm looking at her, right? And I can see that the dress is from, I'm going to be mean, but it's like, you know, this is like a, a Target or Walmart dress in her shoes. And I, I'm not being, I, I'm being nasty, but you come, no, come on, you know, we're not wearing Rolex. We're not wearing, uh, uh, you know, 
all the different brands. <laughs> she literally couldn't answer a single question I gave her. Well, so not, that, that not is not one. It was just rah, rah, rah. And that's that's the thing about investing in all of this. It's they sell trinkets. They sell pie in the sky. You go to YouTube, I can make you rich overnight. Look at me. You know, I got the girl with the big boobies. I got the house. I got the car. Hey, you know, it's all okay, crap, so, man. So that's downstream from what I'm talking about. So real quick, I mean, my, my prior point was very simply that you have a lot of people that are quote unquote crypto enthusiasts who actually understand this stuff. Like, you know, they're writing software and they're yeah, doing stuff no, and they're creating companies and stuff. It's but an they algorithm. Don't, but they don't understand that what they're doing is done more efficiently and easier and usually, you know, I, I, to, to repeat myself, it's way faster to do it in a more traditional manner because it turns out, no, we don't need to put everything in the world on a open ledger that anybody can access. Shock, shocking turn of events. So... The problem is, is you have these people and you, they talk about, oh, wow, a distributed ledger system. And, you know, this could be really interesting for, <laughs> you know, the, how uh, this could be really good for, you know, banking and all this stuff. What do you think they're doing now? And exactly. It's like, what do, what do you think they do now? Of course, they have, like, it's very dumb. Um, well, how many hundreds but, of millions of dollars have we transacted in the last few weeks? Well, so it's all the, it's, it's a distributed ledger system in, in essence. May not be distributed, maybe centralized. But the question is, why does it need to be distributed, and why does it need to be? uh, I shouldn't have said distributed. It's a ledger system. But and why does it need to be publicly accessible? It's just it's dumb. Like the whole thing is dumb. And and the point is, is these people just reinvent things that have already existed, and they reinvent it with crypto. uh, You know, new label and magic, new stuff. There's other examples I won't go into because it's really complex technology. But the point is, is it's. We're, we're, you just have people repeating themselves, reinventing the wheel for no reason. But the best part is, is most of these people are so naive and so green, especially in technology, that they don't know they're creating their own wheel. They think they're, they've created something magic the first time. And that's the point, is they're naive. They don't actually understand the world. Like, you know, they're, they're 20-somethings who don't have any real-life experience, and they think crypto is going to solve all their problems. It's, yeah. it's stupid. And this is what happens when you don't have experienced leadership involved in any step of the process. So to move on to what you're saying about these people who, you know, profess to be crypto geniuses and usually are running like Ponzi schemes and lending operations and all kinds of other weird stuff, or they're just, you know, crypto day traders, um, you know, rising tides raise all boats. So everybody's, everybody's an investment genius. Um, those people, and, and this goes to what my point was earlier, which is, I, the thing I didn't see in, in this is, and you know, this is just a fault of my own perspective and not realizing that most people are not me. And that's, you know, something I have to remind myself of is I said, this is dumb. It's not going anywhere of any substantial use. I mean, it has uses, but they're minimal. Um, where is this going? Eh, not that interesting. I don't see how this could have this kind of massive value creation moment that it's had. Okay, I move on. And a lot of other people have too. But the problem is, is that doesn't mean that the the normal people, people, the you know, what the average person, the people that sit in the middle of the bell curve, those people are getting suckered into scams. And the reason they get suckered into these scams, whether they're real that become scams or they just get 
shafted because they didn't understand what they were getting involved in. No different than people who, who started day trading in the late 90s because, oh, I can trade on my computer at home. No different than those people or the people that, you know, do, oh, I'm a currency trader. I mean, I, I think I told you, you know, as somebody that, that you and I both uh, knew years ago uh, contacted me like sometime in the past two years and, and asked me about, oh, currency trading. And it's just like every now and then like these people pop up and the problem is across the board, the common denominator with all of these people, the currency trading people, the day trading people, the crypto people, is they're trying to get something and for nothing. They want to speculate. They want to gamble. And they don't understand what they're doing. Yeah, so they, they just want to get rich quick for very little effort. Gambling and speculation is not investing. No. I've always said that. And obviously gambling and speculation are two different things, but to the uneducated, they aren't. It's just gambling. Like they don't understand the, the, the reasons the markets are moving. Well, and each, in crypto, each... I mean the reality is is over the past, you know, I still I still pay attention to it a very minimal amount. And you know you you still have very regular daily swings of five to ten percent in almost any crypto coin of your choice, which is asinine. That is the opposite of a mature market. So the fact that you have these people getting involved in it, and oh, they're crypto geniuses. Like, well, yeah, if you have a fairly sophisticated trading platform, you can just set an automatic buy and sell when the market moves up and down in a in accordance and basically you only buy or sell when the market is going in your favor. Like that's, it's that easy because you have those kinds of volatile swings. But of course, most people can't stop at a five or 10% daily, you know, change in value. What do they do? They then go for more risky things that have even more upside. And eventually, you know, they make some decent money if you're patient and then they throw it all away within days or hours as we've found in the past couple of weeks. Yeah. What's the name of the guy that uh, was the crypto king and uh, now oh. sold everything out and he's, he's broke. You mean the, you mean the next Warren Buffett? Yeah. So this guy um, winds up uh, selling everything because uh, what is the matter of one week? Yes. Yeah, um, Sam Bankman fried Bankman freed hyphen. Um, he's the guy. That's a real name. Yeah. Hey, he has, he has a, it's it's always you're starting to see more people have hyphenated last names, and it's just kind of strange. But the fact is, Bank Bankman I'm not going to comment. Yes, on that last that's name. that's a very funny. Uh, uh, that's a very funny coincidence, given the fact that he effectively created a crypto bank that has imploded. But anyways, whole another story. Um, but yeah, he he uh, yeah he created this crypto exchange called FTX. Um, you know, they have stadium naming rights. They've had all these really high-profile ads. Was it, was it the uh, Dolphins, or uh, which one is it uh, down there? Miami Heat, I think. The Heat, that's right. Um, yeah, they've, they've, you know, they've made a big splash, big, giant, fancy marketing budgets and all this stuff. And, you know, the reality is, is the way he's done business. This is, this is a topic for an entire podcast in and of itself. Um, but, you know, he created a hedge fund, crypto hedge fund, and he's got these exchanges and... They're doing all this stuff, and the reality is, at the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, if this was regular securities, like, he'd be in prison. The SEC would have, the SEC would have indicted him for financial crimes, and they still may, because they've got probes ongoing that may prevent the acquisition uh, of his firm, which went belly up uh, yesterday or the day before, and a larger crypto rival of his is going to, or at least 
it was announced that they were going to purchase them and all of their assets. Anyway, it's it's a mess. I mean, it's just this whole entire industry is just filled with nothing but money laundering, crime, and corrupt moral practices that would not fly in the regular financial industry. And the hilarious part is, is most people kind of understand how fungible the morals are in, the, in regular finance. Imagine thinking that that level, that standard, is very, very high compared to what goes on in crypto. I mean, that, that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with people that do things. I mean, a good example is this guy in particular. When there was some rumors, because some leaked documents about how their financials were, and people were starting to analyze them, and they were thinking, eh, these guys don't really seem to be very solvent. Like, like they don't seem to have a lot of runway, and it seems like they just have a Ponzi scheme going. They don't really have access to a lot of money. They have a lot of paper value based on their cryptos that they own and stuff, but they don't have any real hard cash. So if there was to be a bank run, they probably would fold pretty quickly. And then this guy went out to assure everybody that that's not what's going on, that they, he assured everybody that everybody's money is safe and that they have, that they don't uh, fractionally lend or do any of these things. Well, it turns out he was lying because they had, within hours, there was a bank run. People didn't believe him and their, their ability to uh, make customers whole on their deposits uh, quickly disappeared. And that's why they, he made a deal to sell out to his arch rival, basically. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go but back and use How it. do you, anybody who's regulated by the SEC, if they said something like that, literally one day, oh, we have all the money, it's all good. And then the next day, oh, we're getting bought out because they're going to make our customers whole because it turns out we don't have all the money. Or, you know, I'm using money as a, loosely, it's not money, it's cryptocurrency. But you know what I mean? It's like, it's, you're lying. Well, I think one of the advantages that you have, and of course I have, is that I'm an older father. My father was an older father. And unlike my father, I have been actively engaged in your life since day one, obviously. And you are the heir to the company and you are a co-owner. You're, 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 you're my right hand. And, and there's a lot of things that you do that I've passed the baton off. But I have the experience. And you had the, the good fortune of knowing my dad for a while before he passed, obviously. Yeah. And... But the point being is, I want to go back to the networking event at the Godfrey. And, and so for, you know, some people will, will listen to this. And I also want to, before I do that, when I was talking about, I love my clients, because when I say to my clients, and when you say to things, we don't understand it, the universal, if you don't understand it, nobody understands it. I have, I'd never have a client say, well, Paul, we think we ought to do, I have some, some of our younger ones will do that, but very few of our clients over the age of 40 ever question anything we say. If I say, I don't get this thing. This thing doesn't make any sense. You know, food, water, shelter, clothing. How is this going to make any money? You know, there's nothing there. So going back to the Godfrey, I had a guy who said to me, he said, well, Paul, you know, you're in, you're in finance, right? I said, I'm an investment advisor. Yes, and manager. Well, what do you think about this crypto? Okay, that sounds pretty good what she's saying. And here's the thing. I said to him, I said, do you hear any of our conversation? And this is like, I'm reliving it verbatim. And he said, yeah, I heard some of it. I said, well, she could not tell me what fractional shares are. She could not tell me what fractional banking is. She couldn't tell me what Bretton Woods meant, what the gold standard was, who Nixon was in relationship to Charles de Gaulle, 
why there was a rush on the gold, why we went off the gold standard, what happened in World War I and World War II in specific when it came to gold. Why was Fort Knox selected? What did that mean? Where's value? The woman didn't have any idea what I was talking about. Well, if you don't know your history, you're going to repeat your mistakes. And it's like, oh, this has never been done before. Really? I mean, we need to audit the Federal Reserve, right? People always say this, audit the reserve. Is the gold really there? All that kind of stupid stuff. But the point being is all these things that these crypto people talk about, you've got to know your history of currency. And that's a complex topic, uh, as uh, Peter Zine was talking about. Uh, you know, you can go back to Portugal and Spain and, and the minting of coins. And, you know, how do you derive value from things? You know, years exactly. ago, well, I got a goat. Well, I got a daughter. Well, I got a, I got a bag of flour. And we traded, you know, it was barter. Well, yeah. then, that whole history of well, currency is amazing. But then the people, oh, I'm doing crypto. Okay, well, let's talk. If you're a cryptocurrency person, you must understand currency. They don't understand the no. basics. One in one, folks, is not three. Never has been. Well, the the other thing is, like you mentioned, um, you know, the people that want to audit the Fed and all that sort of stuff. And there's, there's, there's some merit to a lot of what these people say, but a lot of it is just asinine. And a good example is like the gold standard people. People that think we need to go back to the gold standard, all oh, the, you know, our, our, you know, they they complain that the U.S. currency is oh, it's it's a fiat currency, it's not based on anything. It's like, well, that's not true. It's it's based on consensus, just like crypto. But more importantly, you know, some, uh, something you talk about a lot is, or at least in the past you have, is that you know the U.S. currency is based off of the ability, the U.S. government's ability to tax citizens. Mm-hmm. But that's not what it's based off of. That's the function of its value basis. The, the real basis of, of the value of the U.S. currency is very simple. It's the productivity of the citizens. If we're not productive, they can't be taxed, and therefore it's not worth anything. So, you know, that's the thing that people just don't really understand is the value is based off of what we do as a country. If we don't do anything, if we just become a country of a bunch of lazy uh, you know, uh, social assistance uh, people who want to get our, our UBI and sit around and, and you know, smoke pot all day and, and you know, sit back and do the hippie thing. Um, the entire system is going to crash really, really, really quick. And, and what you, the key word you said there is consensus. Uh, is when, when, when you talk to people politically and, and they, you know, they, they just, I just get so frustrated on politics. It is a country of the people, by the people, for the people. And to a certain extent, there are certain things that are on need-to-know basis in order for that to function in practicality. I'm not going to go down that crazy path. But the point being is, you're right, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a nation of consensus. It's always, every group of people operates on of course. consensus. Yeah. Okay? So you're with a group of people. There's five people. Somebody's the, the boss. Okay, well, this is what we're doing. And four say, nah, I don't think so. You, you lost your group. You're no longer the boss. You lost consensus. Absolutely. That's what we saw in the election. Yeah. You know, t- Donald Trump is a Humpty Dumpty. His egg was broken. He's, he tried to, he tried to, put, you know, the King's men tried to put him back together, but they couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. This guy is toast. He's lost the consensus. 
But uh, I think last night down at the convention center, um, I do believe, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to be there, I think we saw uh, the next Republican presidential candidate. It's way early to say that. Lots of things can happen. But uh, that was cool. Yeah, well, I, I like I, I mean, Consensus, I, first folks. first thing I said to you this morning was, uh, how, how was uh, Donald Trump's wake? <laughs> and it's true because true. he's done. Like politically, he doesn't. Well. He he doesn't realize it yet. But then he's also been like one of the most myopic uh, idiots that has ever been involved in national politics before. He doesn't understand how the system works, and if he does, he's just an asshole. Well, how about how about the fact that he does understand it? That he's been manipulated, and he's just well, helping to destroy the Republican Party and the two party system. Well, there's that. There's poss- so many there's different that possibility as well. But I mean, if you take him at face value and you don't go into the, any of the the other potential avenues, he's he's a myopic idiot, and um, and if he's not being uh, let's call it extra malicious. He's just being malicious for his own like ego. Then he's then he's an asshole because you know the reality is is he's toxic at this point. He's 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 proven to the GOP that anything he touches turns to shit, and that is that is the most polite way you can put it. You, because the prop the thing is, I mean, you can talk about this, but as far as historical political cycles go, you take um, lots of volatility politically. Nobody's satisfied with anything that's going on. You have a bunch of old, you know, uh, weak sister candidates on all sides going, um, at least on a, you know, on a national basis. You got, you know, all these economic problems, you know, just you fit all these, you, you know, you find your parallels. This has never happened to this degree before where somebody with this kind of momentum for, we hate, these, we hate the current party, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, I understand what I'm saying. Myopia is is incredibly important with what's going on right now. You know, you've got tons of people saying, "Oh, you know, Biden he's just done terrible." It's like he's done lots of shit I disagree with. But you can't do this kind of long. You can't do this kind of destruction in this short amount of time. A lot of what we're seeing economically is consequences from decisions that were made under the Trump administration. I'm really glad you weren't with me at the university club last night. You would have blown your mind with that idiot that I had a yes, discussion I know, with. I know. Yeah. But <laughs> folks, but, but things don't is, happen overnight. No, they don't. And, oh. and you know, some things are consequences of, of, of not just, um, you know, three, four five, six years before, but you know, sometimes it's decades. Sometimes it's just this compounding effect. Um, but, you know, a lot of the economic destruction that we're seeing right now is, is stuff that was coming home to roost for decades. Like, we know that. That's obvious. But a lot of it was accelerated and created and, and, and brought to this, uh, you know, boiling point because of stimulus spending for COVID and how that was handled and all that stuff. I mean, you know, in my opinion, you know, better sooner rather than later. You can't kick the can down the road forever. And we've we talked about that many times before in the past decade but yeah i mean it's into, a lot into of that regard a, a me, lot of the actual attribution of why is this happening now goes to prior to economic decisions made by the prior administration and congress of course because you can't do anything without congress and the spending and all the decisions and all this stuff and and you know letting china basically do what they've done i mean china has, has been in the driving seat for for the destruction of, uh, you know, the global economy. Now, fortunately for us, I don't think they'll survive it, but we will. Well, I want to go back and, and 
because I guarantee a lot of people are not going to understand what you just said and in the context of what we were saying earlier. When you lower interest rates to basically zero, you have free money. When you have an idea. Very limited risk. Very limited risk. Right. Because worst case, I mean, if it's effectively zero, that means that the risk on losing the money is, you know, you can borrow it forever. So what happens is I have an idea. I want to make widgets. Even though we've made widgets for millions of years, my widgets are better than any widget you've ever seen. And I'm going to hire uh, that uh, AOC girl because she's going to say it's, uh, you know, we've never had widgets before. These are the original widgets because she Magic has. crypto widgets. Magic crypto widgets, okay? <laughs> Could get Cortez to be the president of the magical widget uh, company USA. So then what we're going to do is we had all this money and, you know, this things are really going great. And we get different members of on our board of directors who, you know, are who's who's. Uh, kind of like uh, our, our lady that uh, did that uh, medical testing. I lost her name uh, real quickly. You know what I'm talking about. Elizabeth Holmes. Oh, and, yeah. Um, so we, we get uh, George Schultz. We get Henry Kissinger. We get all these people on the board of directors. And, uh, well, we had instant credibility. And, uh, and then we, we, you know, do a little bit of funny money book, uh, book uh, manipulation. We go public. I line my pockets with lots of money and my executive compensation. And the, but the key is the thing the thing people always miss in that in that setup there that scheme. There's an important there's an important um, uh, I would say an actor that you know a lot of people say oh they didn't know but you know they're acting in their own interest too, and it's the it's the venture capital firms. Well, right. Why is going to go there? Well, no, because they fund a company. They fund a company. They then, you know, propel these, you know, crappy ideas along. One of them catches some lightning. They go, they go. Now they are now more valuable than all of the companies that they put money into, which is how they work. I mean, they're just throwing darts at the wall, hoping something will stick. Mm -hmm. And then, oh, oh, now this blows up. It's a publicly traded company. What do they do? Most of them tr sell out within the first two years of it being a public company. Right, but who do they, they sell out to? That's where I was going to go, though. Well, they sell out and they shift. They now shift the liability for that company off to the regular investors in the public markets, which are, you know, largely mutual funds, ETFs, exactly, uh, and, and that was pensions, stuff like that. So what they do is they take their crappy investment, hype it up, put it out to the public markets, and now they sell out. And now who's left holding the bag? Your four hundred one ks and your average street investors and your pensions Bingo. and people like that. So, so I, I, I get my venture capitalists, yeah. I, I get my money, my venture capitalists, we do investing as well here privately, we don't do it for clients, we do our own investing. And so I know people and you know people and what we do, we put together, uh, you know, hey, we got an investor group. And now this company is, uh, well, you know, it's, it's, it's like you just said, it's, it's got a, it's caught lightning, it's going, right, okay, great, we got lightning, lightning, lightning in a barrel, in a, in a glass, in a, in a jar rather. So we got it. Well, now... We hire an investment banking firm. Yes. Oh, Goldman Sachs or any of the others that are out there, right? Yeah, any of the big boys. Yeah, we're going with the big boys. And we have instant credibility because, well, even though it doesn't make any difference, we have instant credibility because we hire the big boys. We pay the fee. It's like hiring, um, it's like hiring uh, Moody's or Duff and Phelps and uh, S&P. Oh, well, we get bonds. They're rated. Oh, it's yep. got to be good. It goes back to, again, 2008. 
And so as a result, now, well, now we got to get rid of this stuff. Well, then who runs these mutual funds? Well, Vanguard gets a cut of the action. Fidelity gets a cut of the action. Schwab gets a cut of the action. Everybody's getting a cut of the action, and they're putting money into it. They have their own little, you know, subsidiaries and ancillary organizations, and they've got part of the IPO. They're making good coin. But then who buys this crap, which is really what it is? It's literally a pile of crap in a box. The box has got a nice, pretty uh, Christmas wrapping on it and a bow, and you put some lye in there so it doesn't smell because it's all lye and pile of crap, and they sell it to the who do they sell it to? Well, nobody knows who their mutual fund managers or ETFs. No, of course not. not. Not one person listening, I guarantee you, not one single person listening could name who their uh, mutual fund manager or ETF manager is, who the executive team is. They, they don't know. No. Okay. They, they think they own companies. They don't know that they, they own shares of companies that own companies. They, it, it's... So they got bundled financial products and they've multi-steps away from actually owning things. Okay, so now keeps keep going, keep going. It's a Ponzi scheme in, es in essence, really what it comes down to. But it's legal because you went through all these different things and now the company blows up. And then yeah. who's holding? Who's holding the bag? And the, and the crappiest part about Taxpayers it. Taxpayers and the shareholders. Cause well, yeah, and the crappiest part about it, you know, pun totally intended, um, is, uh, you know, on who's, who's holding that pile of crap is that the SEC thinks that this is perfectly legal to do because, you know, as long as you don't lie on your public forums, then, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's totally fine. It's like, does nobody see what's going on here? Big guys make a bunch of money. They then pool their funds together. They then invest in new companies, except because money's free and or not free, but it's cheap. You know, they have a lot more of it. They can leverage a lot harder. And then they just, Create a bunch of crap, find a couple of things that work, shift it off, make more money. It's just it's you can see the cycle work before. I mean, you know, you can you can just see how it works. And and the thing is, in prior times, people that were more, I guess, that had a, high, a higher level of morals and ethics, they would see these people and basically give them the middle finger, and they would be treated as pariahs because it's very obvious what they're doing. Instead, that is be, viewed as like genius financial investment I agree uh, uh, tactics so it's just it's it's just scummier and well scummier. It's, it's worse than that is it's not much different in the past than what we had with COVID if you raised a question went, wait a minute this is not a vaccine this is a genetic modifier are you sure you want to do this because there's not a lot of testing you were an enemy of the state the media jumped in it now it's the very same thing with investing you have some of these people there's not that many people in the in the in the, in the financial media. No, and there some of these people you got to be you got to be honest with it. These journalists are bought and paid for. You, you uh, have yeah. to sit back and I mean, be honest of, about it. If they aren't, then they sure as hell act like it. And so you 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 start to say things like I've you know this I've said this for you you can't trust Chinese accounting, and so oh well you're a xenophobe you're this you're everything else no. I know for a fact that some of these companies, they, they literally have 100 employees and they report that they have 1,000 employees. We were talking about that. In oh, yeah, that, that type of stuff is, is super common. Yep. I mean, it, if it wasn't for independent people who were able to get into China, who took pictures, that one guy, who's, his stuff is on YouTube, he exposed so many of these companies. And so you have American depository receipts. ADRs are companies that are foreign 
It's a way of getting your, your stock listed on the, on the U.S. Stock Exchange. They were pure, unadulterated frauds. Oh, but Paul, oh, Paul, you mean you don't have, you don't have stock with China? That's the next great market. It's a great market for hogwash. I'm sorry, man. I just... No, no, it's true. I mean, a a good example of this, I don't have the exact details off the top of my head because I read this years ago, but when China was allowed to join the World Trade Organization, I think in like 2000 or 2001 or something like that, um, and a lot of their companies were being allowed access, particularly their banks were being allowed access to do business with ours, right? Yep. First time. Um, you know, before they had access, but they used, they were done through trusted intermediaries, which of course adds costs and time and it's a whole hassle, but they started being integrated into our, our financial system for the first time. And that's when, you know, the ADRs and all this magical, uh, uh, stuff started happening. And I, I don't really recall the exact incident and, and how it all worked, but the, the story that I remember reading about was that it was around this time people started doing analysis on their books because they, in order to be publicly traded and do different things, they had to submit, you know, their corporate books and people looked at them and just kind of scratched their head and went, this doesn't really make any sense at all. Like we can't figure out what the hell's going on here. Like none of this shit adds up. It's like somebody who doesn't understand how a PL statement works and they just, put one together and it just doesn't add up. Like this stuff does, there's no way this stuff is real. And so China was like, uh, basically we went to them as like, this does not meet, you know, gap standards at all. You guys need to figure this. You need to figure your mess out before we go forward. They apparently went back home and were like, Oh, we didn't understand how American gap accounting and all the, all the uh, accounting standards works. Hmm. By the way, everybody, what he is saying is hundred percent true. I lived this. Yeah, I don't, I don't know the details. I don't know the players. I don't know the timeline that well, but I, I remember the story pretty well. And, you know, basically at the end of the day, what did they do? They went, they were like, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll go get our stuff together. Well, if you have an entire economy that's based on a totally different <laughs> standard for how you report things, I don't know how you could ever join those two things together. But anyways, they came back like 18 months later and it magically worked with our system. So they figured out, they hacked the system. They figured out how to make their BS look legitimate to our people. And the worst part is, is we just went like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. It's like, uh, and another, here's another one with China. I mean, like, I'm I'm, not, I'm sorry, I'm going to do it again. It's like COVID. Oh yeah. Well, whatever you say. Yep. Yes. We believe you. I, well, there's just too much financial incentive, right? I mean, you know, blo- booming Chinese economy, China's economy for, you know, it's been, it's been the, the, you know, the desire of the American banking and investment business for decades, uh, two decades, I guess, to get into the Chinese market. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And the reason people want to get into the Chinese market is because as, as juicy as the West is, it's it's saturated. Like they have, they've consumed, they control all the assets. Right. You go to China, you have like most of the population has almost all of their money in cash. Trillions upon trillions of dollars in cash. So that would be a huge boon for any any company that wants to get people to invest and do yep. stuff. Yeah. So, it, and what's funny is now China's just starting to allow foreign investment banks and things to go into the country where they don't have to be a wholly owned subsidiary of a Chinese corporation. It's very funny. And they're allowing them to do this because they're that desperate. 
that's a story for another podcast. But as well as the fact that the Chinese military government is always an owner in every publicly oh, yes. traded company. I always Usually, remember when yeah. you buy anything in China, anything, I don't care if it says made in China or you buy any kind of stock or any kind of an ownership interest, you're investing in a communist country. And if you don't know what a communist country and government rig is, well, bless your sweet little heart. Well, yeah. So the thing about China that's absolutely hilarious is somebody did a study. Um, you know, there's going to be a margin for error on this study. I, I don't remember the guy's name who did it. But he did a very basic study, very basic uh, data analysis. He said, in these places in the world that have reputable accounting standards and GDP numbers and population numbers and all that stuff. He said, basic stuff. We have satellite pictures of every place on the planet going back 35 or 40 years. So he said, I'm going to correlate economic growth to the lights in the sky at night. Real simple. Very, very simple proxy for economic development. If you have more GDP, that probably means you have more employees. There's more wealth. They build more streets. They build more housing. You know, all the basic stuff that we do. And it's not and just a daytime biz, uh, a workforce. It's also an evening and sometimes third shift workforce. Everybody's got to live someplace. Yep. Like, yep. It, and, and obviously every place isn't the same because, you know, some places build more vertically. Some places build more horizontally. But you can come up and you can normalize the data and come up with a fairly robust uh, data set and, and you can come to some conclusions. And basically what the guy did is he, he tracked different, he tracked Europe, he tracked the United States, he tracked Japan, he tracked, you know, Japan's a good proxy because they've had basically flat population uh, growth for, uh, since the 90s, uh, flat GDPs for the most, I mean, uh, at least inflation adjusted GDP. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff, you know, you can talk about there that, you know, there's a lot of good proxy information for how does this actually get implemented in real life? And he's like, okay, well, let's go look at magical China, land of the self-reported 10-plus percent yearly uh, GDP growth. Let me guess. Uh, what was the end result? His estimation is they over-report their GDP growth between like uh, 3 and 4% per year. But 3 and 4% per year, that's not a big deal. No, it's not a big deal. But just like AUM... Just like assets under management, ah, one percent a year—that's not a big deal. Yeah, add that up over thirty years. You know what that means? You know what that means for China? Forty percent reduction in GDP. Forty percent so, reduction in GDP. That is hilarious, and that makes total sense now when you look. Oh, at the is that kind of like corresponding to their population estimates that yes. they won't release? Yep, it is. But it also also attributes a lot more to the concentration of wealth, to the city elites. And why they still have, you know, at least according to their own numbers, like several hundred million people who live in peasant kind of serfdom out in the middle of nowhere, China, and have no desire to come to the cities because, you know, it's impossible to make, make your way there now. It's just crazy. Okay, so we've said a few things we're going to have to explain. Um, I need you to explain a few, a few things. Uh, I'll, I'll do the AUM thing. Let me start with that. What Paul said with AUM, assets under management is a method of commission-based compensation that is touted as a fee, which one day, someday, I probably will be dead before it ever happens. The SEC uh, in Congress should prohibit 
an investment advisor from using the word fee when there is assets under management because that's a slow bleed commission. Now, a death by a thousand cuts is a Chinese thing where you just keep nicking at somebody. Here in our, our nation and in, in, in England, you know, see all the draw and quarter where you draw, you know, you cut them down and then you slice and you let their guts hang out and they finally, they finally die basically uh, from a crucifix type hanging. But the, the point being is that over time, that's a lot of money. Assets or management is a really expensive thing. So one well, percent here, one percent there. It's a, it's an annual commission. That's it's all. an annual commission. That's, that's all it. it is. So if you buy more, you pay more. You sell more, you pay more. If you profit more and you pay more, and if you have more money and you pay more because of AUM, these are all forms of commission. Okay. We're real proud of what we do here, and and by basically taking our middle finger and saying, we don't care, you know, this is the way it works. And, and we'll, I'll go toe to toe and nose, nose anybody, any place, anytime, anywhere and debate it. And I am an absolute subject matter expert on it. And that's what scares the shit out of people in the business because this is the future and they know it. They're, they're, they're in their, their business is done. So, but what's the point? Well, let's say you're paying one and a half percent a year. Well, what's one and a half percent times 10, that's 15. Now, if you told somebody that you're going to buy a stock and you're going to pay 15% commission, well, the government would shut you down. That's that you're, you're You can't do that. You can't do that. But if you said, well, look, pay me 20% commission when I, you buy this stock, and, but then you never pay anything after that. Well, the, when's the break-even point? Well, what do you think it costs to get a house? What, what, does anybody ever realize the absolute total cost to get a house? When you go get your mortgage, you, you, you know, do, do you have any idea the total costs that are involved in a mortgage, loan origination, the mortgage, all of it? Then you got the realtor. You, they're in a 10, 15% range. People say, oh, no, that's not the case. Yeah, you are. And we understand real estate investment trusts and how those things work. You know, money in ground, sometimes it's only 70%, sometimes it's 75%. So there's a cost of doing business. So, when you have somebody who's always nickeling and diming you year after year after year, that's a lot. If you apply that very same thing to exaggerating your growth or exaggerating your, your cost savings, there's a problem. And I'll give real quickly. Uh, you were a young, very young man when uh, I did the uh, research on a company called Penn Treaty, the insurance company. Uh, a tremendously large class action that I put together along with uh, Andy and others down in uh, Tampa and Jones Day. We put together a nationwide class action. We worked on that thing. We, we were very fairly compensated on it. But I proved what? I proved that those guys were exaggerating on the rates of return. They were exaggerating on their underwriting. They were exaggerating on all these different things. It was only 10% here, 10% there. 10, but at the end of the day, Penn Treaty doesn't exist. It literally well, in, went bankrupt. And their, their actuarial calculations were generous, to say the least. Yeah. If you could fog a mirror, you're probably going to live in our 20 years. No, not necessarily. <laughs> you know, that you're, you're, you're putting mirrors in front of people in the nursing homes and on, on, the, on life support. Yeah, well, they're still alive. No, you can't do that. But they're in receivership. Uh, the state of Pennsylvania's got them. I go on for hours on it. But I'm really proud of what we did for our clients. Our clients are made whole. Point being is, if it sounds too good to be true, Sometimes it is unless you can prove it with facts and figures and nail it. So 
I think that's just a. Yeah, I think just, people just got to know that, man. It's just but look, the, one and one is damn two. <laughs> but the thing is, is you know the the argument that most people make is, oh well, you know AUM, like people agree to it and whatever, and it's a contract, and that's true. That's true. Most people, you know, they may not understand it, but at least it was disclosed, just like we talked about previously. With you know, as long as it's perfectly disclosed, and the SEC says it's legal. But in China, they lied about it. That's the point. That's the thing. Bernie Madoff lied about they it. They lied about it. Yeah. And and not only that, it's just it's long-term deception that just, they can't be trusted. They can't be trusted. It's no different than Russia. They, it is a country of people whose, whose morals and ethics when it comes to business, when it comes to, to how we value human life, to... All of these things are just fundamentally incompatible with the West. Which is one and, of the things. And that is the, that is the problem. You know, we can't let a desire for global expansion and greed and this international kumbaya desire that everybody's had since the end of World War II to overtake the basic realities of sometimes there are people that are just incompatible and we can't get along. And, and in, in our part... We look past people's uh, maliciousness and hope that it'll be better. And with more education and training, they'll somehow be able to align to our way of thinking. And instead, what, are they, what, do, what do our competitors do? Mainly China and Russia for this, this discussion. What do they do? They take just advantage take advantage of it. of it. And they just like, ah, oh, these stupid Americans, fuck them. We'll take their stuff. We'll, we'll lie. We'll steal. We'll do whatever, and at the end of the day, then they'll just play dumb. Like, oh, we're, oh, you know, and we that was know. the discussion that I had at university in Wisconsin when Reagan and Ford were going at it, and we used to talk about mutual assured destruction and parity in in weapons, and oh, we won't have a problem. And I was like, no, no, it doesn't work that way. Somebody has to be the big man on campus. It's no different than the discussion I had last night with this gentleman. Uh, I don't dislike him, but I fundamentally disagree with almost everything he said. And look, you know, people, people are going to be shocked when I say this. I don't have a problem with a nuclear war. If not now, when? Somebody has to, at some point in time, put their foot down and beat the holy hell out of people. I was a cop. And you know what? There were times when I got seriously hurt, and I knew I was going to get hurt. But I was paid to do a job, and sometimes... You got to do what you're going to do. And just real quickly, you know, I, I like to tell the story about the, the big giant guy that had just been released from prison. I'm not going to do race or anything else, who was sodomizing a 12 year old girl in an alley behind Yellow Cab in Tampa. Okay. And I rolled up on the thing. Okay. I heard screams. I rolled up on it. And I knew this guy was going to beat the holy hell out of me. Now, I, you know, do, do I wish I had shot the guy? I, yeah. It'd be me. And an unarmed guy, and we're not of the same race. How's that? Fair enough. I would have been toast. But he beat the holy hell out of me. I hung on long enough until the rest of the guys got there, and he went to jail and never heard of him again. Third time, okay? Third, third, third time he got popped for rape. But you, sometimes you got to do that. It's like these guys in Ukraine, you know, it's like you and I going, hey, this is our country. These Russians are here. This is our country. We're going to die for it. It's like Mel Gibson in The Patriot, you know. It's just sometimes there's a higher order. And, and I think it's like consensus is what we talked about in the beginning. This is a country that governs by consensus. And I think the election, and I hope Trump realizes this, there is a consensus that you need to go away. 
Yes. And the the thing you said earlier about, you know, nuclear weapons and all that stuff, I think it has to, you, people have to remember something. It's It's very obvious. It's something that, to me, when I grew up, it was obvious, but I, I'm fairly certain, based on my discussions with people that are younger than me, that people just don't understand this. Um, there comes a point when you can't worry about things that are outside of your control. Bingo. And unfortunately, most people waste most of their waking brain cycles on things that are outside of their control. Absolutely. Um, now that doesn't mean you put your head in the sand and ignore things, but be aware, you need, but yeah, but you know, you can't lose sleep over stuff that doesn't have, you have no control over. And if that means that, you know, uh, there's an asteroid coming and it might hit earth. Well, you just need to keep going about your day. You know, this whole idea of, Oh, we're going to have the purge day and everybody's going to be able to do whatever they want because the end of the earth comes. Well, what if it doesn't, what if it was fake, you know, and at the end of the day, what does it matter? Like, just, you gotta, it's outside of your control. I'll tell you what, if the purge day comes, I want to own the bar because we're going to still take money. And when Absolutely. it's all said and done, we're going to clean up. Absolutely. Well, but also, what if it's like just, oh, it fell in the ocean and we got some tsunamis. Okay, we'll fit, we'll clean it up. You know what I mean? It's just, it's about perspective. Uh, but, but, the, but the other thing is, you know, it also this also parlays into the same thing I was talking earlier about with China, and and how the West interacts with with others, and you know some people won't like this because you know we're the big bad evil people and you know we're terrible and we abuse everybody. Yeah, right. Um, people should not mistake our kindness and our generosity for weakness, and unfortunately, that has been taken advantage of a lot. And in a in an environment where the economic situation is not so favorable, where the global resource allocation is not so favorable, um, particularly to our enemies, and there's a lot of hard times coming, generally speaking, in most places in the world, and that includes the West. Um, Do you repeat that? Because I think that's something that we need to... Folks, you need to listen to this because when we say things like this, you need to you need to pay attention. We're uh, we're not stupid men. Repeat that. So there's a lot of hard times coming, particularly uh, not just in particular, but but also to people in the West. I mean, there's a lot of global transition happening, and it's not going to be great for everybody. If you're in the West, in particular in the United States, you probably have the biggest upside that potential that you have just purely based on resources and, and how our economy is set up and everything. But there's a lot of places in the world, some places in the West that it's going to be really ugly. And I think the thing is people have to realize that we don't, there's going to be a time in the near future when we can't afford to be generous with other people. And other people are going to have to stand on their own two feet. And if that means, you know, hundreds of millions of people starve to death because we want to make sure that Americans can still feed themselves, then that's what's going to happen. So, like I said, people should not take our generosity as weakness. They should not take our kindness as weakness because we can be meaner and nastier and more violent than anybody, than anybody else, in, just as violent as anybody else in the block. I mean, people forget 
The United States wiped two Japanese cities off the face of the earth for effectively no reason, politically. It didn't force them to resign. It didn't force them, or not resign, but it didn't force them into a peace treaty. Japan was forced into a peace treaty for one reason and one reason only. It was because the, the Soviets declared war on them. That's the unspoken thing in history. People don't want to talk they about it. They couldn't afford a two-front war. No, they, they knew that, okay, we can fight the Americans to, to the death and, and, and we can make it very painful for them and, and we would feel good doing that because the Americans cannot destroy our entire industrial base. I mean, basically from the beginning of the war, we firebombed everything in that country every day for, I mean, not literally every day, but you know, constantly for years. I mean, they figured out how to do distributed manufacturing and, like they were turning into a like a wartime terrorist economy, basically. They figured out how to do it. They're not stupid. But Hiroshima and Nagasaki were setbacks, but it wasn't going to be the end of them. It was when they realized that they couldn't face an invasion from both the Soviet Union that was no longer preoccupied with Europe and the United States. And they knew it was over, and they had to sue for peace. That was their line. It had nothing to do with the nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons were kind of a push because they realized that, ah, oh, crap, any big concentration of people could just be vaporized by one bomb. That's going to be a problem. So the point is, is that at the end of the day, it wasn't, <laughs> it's, we vaporized what? 400,000 people for no reason. If you want to see, we can be just as mad as in, in, in angry and nasty as anybody else, but we don't because we have a different set of morals and standards. But my point is at the end of the day, the, the United States, um, is is things are changing and people uh things could be a lot worse i guess is my point and the reality is is uh, at a certain point people need to carry their weight and as far as economics go uh people that lie and manipulate that badly um they should be punished and yes. so people like there's lots of people who are sitting back it's like we shouldn't punish China as much as we have been as far as like the, the chip technology transfer and, you know, the, the all the intellectual stuff with relation to uh, semiconductors and, and that whole industry. And it's comical in my view because like the fact that we allow them to come anywhere close to where they're at today is just, it, it's, it's beyond humiliating because we've known what's been going on there forever. It's just, it's convenient for us. And you know, we'll get more. We'll get more into the, the 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 transition stuff. I think in the future. But yeah, I mean, people. Well, one of the words when push, I, when push comes to shove, I think you know the United States is going to do what's in our own citizens' best interest. And like I said, I mean, it's not a, it's not a pleasant thing to think about. But if that means that everybody in the United States does not miss a meal for an entire year during a a cycle of uh uh bad harvests or whatever. And that means that people on the other side of the planet that we'll never see starve to death. Like that's the choice that our politicians are going to make and you may not like it, but your belly is going to be thankful for it. And your children are going to be thankful for it. Cause we're never going to have a situation again, unless there's a total destruction of the global economy um, or something beyond the, the ability of people to imagine uh, at least the way the current global order is set up where people we're going to have like a 1930s dust bowls, you know, famine type situation. Like that's just not going to happen. Well, it is encouraging to see a I'll use these words reshoring of 
of uh, manufacturing. Um, we this whole idea of just in time manufacturing, just in time delivery. It, it folks, you know, just enough warehouse capacity. You know, keep it lean and mean. That's not a good thing. It's just it's not a good thing. Uh, one minor disruption and you're done. Yeah, I'll give you a good example now. Uh, well, COVID I, has pointed this entire thing out. Has made it really crystal clear to people. Thankfully, things weren't just in time to the extreme that COVID knocked it all over, right? But it's shown everybody that yeah, maybe you should have a lot more domestic manufacturing for stuff. You shouldn't have, you know, eighteen week leads on a just in time domino that like one falls out and the whole thing falls down. You know, think of. Uh, we all can have images in our head of, of, of these different manufacturing plants. Uh, the cars, I think, are the, the most entertaining one of them making, putting partially made cars in parking lots because they don't have the way, they don't have a way to fi- finish them, you know? Well, you, now listen. Like, there's seen. a lot of good mental imagery that's come out over the past two years that that's powerful to people. And that's, and people are voting based on that. Like, that's, that's, yeah. you know, to round back to the politics stuff. I mean, People are voting based on that. Like, well, here's the thing. People eventually know in their gut what's right and wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, for example, now I did, a, I did a promo for this episode on the LinkedIn, and I discussed how uh, Russia was seizing uh, civilian vehicles. And yeah. I did a joke where I put the Tonka truck, a little kid, <laughs> yeah. sand. He's got the Tonka truck. You know, his Tonka next. And you, but here's the thing. You have, to, you have to do memes like that to get people to realize but here's what I guarantee, uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, one and all, do you know why Russia is not able to manufacture uh, vehicles like they used to? Now, and my friend from last night would, would say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. They have a vibrant economy. He sounds like a, like a Trump. Trump would say that. Oh, you got to be careful. Those Russians, they, they are good people. They're good people. Well, Paulie, how many parts does it take to build a vehicle? And then where do all these parts come from? Uh, well, if you're like us, they come from all over. And, and that's the thing. Like people don't understand how the Russian economy evolved in the post-Soviet era. They didn't reinvest in making the Soviet era economy better and the Soviet era machine tools and the practices better. They just either imported them or they exported the production to other countries. They didn't, and they didn't end up making themselves, they didn't, they didn't continue the advancement. You know, so a simple thing like um, you take something really simple, like uh, like 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 let's say we're we're building a tank. Obviously, that's not simple, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not super complicated. It's not a Mercedes, and it's not. Well, I'm thinking like compared to, you know, like aircraft, jet engines, stuff like that. Um, so you know, you're going to build a tank, and you know, you've got all these pro, you've got all these machine processes involved. Well, what they ended up doing was they ended up manufacturing you know, different things differently. So they said, okay, well, uh, to take a, I don't know, let's say a barrel, right? You gotta, you gotta get your, you have to, you have to select your steel. You have to, um, cold hammer forge the, the pieces of steel. You know, you have to scan them and make sure that the grain in them is, is oriented correctly and it's not going to have breaks and fractures and, like there's so many little details, but let's say you're still able to do all that stuff and you're able to you're able to get it done properly. Well, you're gonna upgrade your tools in the future, right? Like, you know, you have your your lathes and your your boring um lathes and like all this fancy yep. tool 
and you know to cold steel forging all that stuff but but i'm just talking about the tooling of the metal right now we're down to tooling of the metal well those tools who makes those tools probably germans (laughs) well but if it's 1991 like that's soviet technology they they made their own tools they made their own tools the 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 bits the uh the uh the the actual tool tips the the uh, high carbon steel uh or carbide steel tips or whatever anyways all of those that stuff that there's a process somebody has to go and make that because then you know this long chain of things and eventually it gets this tool that this big lathe that t- spins the, the 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 tank barrel right and it's also institutional knowledge uh, yeah obviously and there's la- there's all the layers well what happened in the post soviet era is they didn't continue to upgrade those that that big vast deep array of of things they just said you own a you own the tank factory, right? Mm-hmm. So you're you're now Pavel, and you know you're the you're the tank oligarch. Paulie's well, tank, pa- Pavel. No, pa- I want to call Paul. Okay, so Paulie's tank. Yep. So we make Tonka trucks, so we make tanks. Yeah. So your your tank um, factory, you decide. Well, it's not in my best interest to keep spending this egregious amount of money. You, you take the GE route. So what do you do? We don't need to know how to do this stuff anymore. Screw it. Our own stuff's more expensive. The Westerners, it's cheaper. I'm just going to buy uh, a tool, uh, tooling and stuff from from the Czech Republic and Germany. And, and, and using it's better. GE, I'm going to sell that off to the Czech Republic and Germany. Eh, well, in Russia's case, it's shit. So they just they just they just mothball a factor and walk away from it. Um, and those people lose jobs. But you get to save more money, and you're more efficient than you were before. So... For your bottom line, it's great, and for you know this uh, no-name city that made just was tool, was a tool and die city that just needed investment to be able to keep up with the modern Western standards. Uh, you know, they're told to just go rot and die, and basically that's what happens. They just become drunks and drug addicts, and they they die basically. Vodka for everybody. Yep. And, but, you know, you're the oligarch and you're the only man that matters because, you know, you're friends with the, you know, the people that run the government. So that's just how it works. Right. It's fine. Get me a big super yacht. Yep. Exactly. Well, now you have sanctions. Fast, fast forward 20 years. You've not, you've now, you're now totally stuck on the, on the drug known as Western technology. Um, You're so, your, your factors are so invested into Western technology because it's more efficient and it's cheap and all this great stuff. The problem is, is it relies on a steady stream of repair parts and software updates and uh, tool and die bits and all of the, the uh, what do you call it? The media uh, for all the machines. And then in some cases it's also what there's one more service techs, the guys who repair the machines a lot of those guys are people traveling from the Czech Republic, Poland, places like that, who have special certifications from these companies to be able to repair them and maintenance them and all that. Yeah. And now you have sanctions. What happens? I'm thinking your factory doesn't run for very long before you realize that, oh, crap. Where are we going to get the media? Where do we... Oh, no, we don't get the software updates anymore. Who's going who's gonna to sell us all this stuff? And very quickly, you can see how your, your stuff falls apart. And one of the grand kind of examples of this was um, uh, what we call uh, cassette bearings. 
So, you know, to put it very simply. Bearings are something that is really high tech. And boy, you got to do them right. It is absolutely hilarious that we are in the year 2022 and high quality, high precision bearings and ball, ball bearings are still a thing that a handful of com- countries can only do. And you just said cassette bearings, which you got to explain that yeah, because so that, I'm gonna, is, I'm gonna explain that is such an amazing concept that yeah, nobody gonna, understands. Yeah, I'm going to explain it really quickly. So in, in trains, you have your, your wheels on the train. Your, your train wheels interface with the track, right? Um, train wheels... There's ball bearings behind those, and in the olden days, you know the ball bearing. You'd take the wheel off of the train, you'd put a handful of ball bearings in there, you'd pack it with grease, you put the train wheel on, and you know there's there's a system for how all of that interacts with your brakes and all of that. I'm I don't even understand it, but basically, uh, you you basically it took by hand. You put you you assembled this cartridge. Basically, there's a couple of very good YouTube right? videos that actually discuss this. If you anybody yeah, wants yeah, to see yeah. it, and it's actually fascinating if but you look at it from an open mind standpoint. And I really want to understand this. Something so simple that you don't take for you just like ah that, exactly. You know, you know, it's like uh, it's like brakes. Nobody takes the 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 advancement of brakes on your vehicle is amazing compared oh, to what it was years ago. Yeah. So same thing here, trains yeah. and. Again, if you don't if you don't understand what I'm talking about, stuff. or you don't have a mental image of it, YouTube it. I'm sure there's some great person there that has extreme expertise that is just would be super excited to get a view of somebody listening to how his thing works. I wonder if there's another investment advisory firm out there right now talking about uh, cassette bearings and trains. I doubt it. <laughs> Maybe one or two, but I would be surprised <laughs> if that was me. Anyway, so so to, to super long story short, you these trains. In order to reduce friction and all that, you have greased bearings. Well, many years ago, I think in the U.S. it was like uh, sometime in the middle of the last century. I don't know. Uh, let's, let's say somewhere closer to the end than, than the beginning. Um, we in the U.S. switched over to using what they call cassette bearings. This is my understanding. Um, and I think it's primarily just for maintenance. It's super easy to take a whole cassette off of something that has all of your bearings packed in there. And then there's also like how they're the type of bearing they are. They're a different, they just work differently. I'm I'm not, I I don't have a good mental image and I'm not going to try and explain it over audio, but they're more efficient. They're easier to maintenance. It makes sense from a perspective of I run train cars. Okay. Well, the Soviets used the old style until the Soviet union collapsed because that every that's just how this that's that's how that's how the Soviet Union worked. If it wasn't broke, they weren't going to fix it, and that's just how that's just how they operated. And fast forward to the privatization of of the rail networks and all that sort of stuff, they switched their things over because it, it actually made a lot of economic sense to to have these new cassette bearings and all of that. Well, the downside is they don't make those. They import them from us and maybe Germany. So in the very beginning of the war, I remember seeing some uh, analysts talk about how, uh, hey, there's this thing called uh, bearings and blah, 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 and Russia switched over to them because it just makes good economic sense. And um, they have a supply based on, based on just the basic uh, purchasing orders and how much stock they have and stuff. 
they have enough to last them basically through a year. But if these sanctions last longer than a year, Russia's going to have a lot of domino effects happen to their entire distribution, their trade system, because Russia's trade system runs on trains. In the U.S., we drive trucks everywhere, but we also don't have, like, Siberia in between, like, most of the country. We have... If you want to see really monster-sized trains, go to South Dakota, North Dakota. Of course, of you course. Got, you but, got your miles we, and miles of trains, but you just don't see that. But if all the trains in the U.S. were to stop running, it would be a pain, but it wouldn't be the end of the world. Nope. But in Russia, you know, you got to drive something from, you know, Vladivostok to Moscow... Ain't that's happening. that's just not going to happen. I mean, it, some things do, I'm sure, but that's just that's not going to work. You need trains. And that also comes into play when you're talking about Russian like military logistics, like they need trains. Russia Russia is only efficient when they have rail networks. They can't improvise. And it also just comes down to math. Like trains are tremendously efficient, especially when you're moving heavy cargo. There's really no more efficient method of transportation other than these giant ocean liners that carry all this and you cargo know, And that's a good point. You know, the United States, the only reason why, and this is my guy last night, I, I said this, and he was like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. We don't have naval superiority. He started going into China and what they have and Russia, and he said, you're not considering all the submarines that are out there. I was like, I'm rolling my eyes. Oh my God! I, you know, sometimes I just want to scream. And this guy worked in the White House. Yeah, well. yeah, I know. It, you know what? It's like a Holiday Inn commercial. I stayed at a Holiday Inn next to a nuclear power plant. And when the nuclear power plant melts down, well, I can fix it because I was nearby. That's what those yeah, commercials. Well, exactly. Most people don't understand what those commercials were all about. It was no. the hubris of, well, I, I'm adjacent, so I can do it too. So, so, so the thing I keep hinting at is just it's it's the domino effects of of un, it's unintended consequences. Oh, we get and them where, close, and where does it go? Right, right. And for us, you know, as much as you and I have complained about just in time manufacturing, and we've got all these problems and blah blah blah. There's a lot of smart people who have planned for these things, and COVID showed that we were a lot better prepared for this crap than anybody thought we were. Mm-hmm. Right now, things weren't great, but it wasn't the end of the world. I mean, you know, compared to China where, you know, they had food, they have, they still have, I mean, they've, they have had, and they have food riots, people starve to death in their apartments. And that still happens. Um, they eat a lot of rice, I, which requires a lot of phosphate. I, Nobody ever talks well, about that. Well, that's a whole, no, that's, that's a, a whole nother That's discussion. a whole nother thing. I'm just talking base level <laughs> stuff, you know, uh, teaser, a, a teaser good example, for another episode. Well, good. Ex- another good example is like, uh, uh, there was a, I think a fire in an apartment building and a place that was having big lockdowns in the mm-hmm. past couple of weeks, yep. maybe two or three weeks. And, but because of like how the, the COVID lockdown districts were set up, these people literally lived next door to the hospital, but they couldn't get out of their apartment to go to the hospital because COVID lockdowns, you can't leave your apartment. Did you see the fire? That, now I thought you were going to talk about, they had a fire recently and gosh, uh, I, I, I lost the name of the city, but it's, it's a common city. Um, starts with a G if it, if it comes to your head. Guangzhou, um, maybe. Might, might have been. Apartment fire, lockdown, and the firemen had to go through a COVID checkout center yes. before they could begin fighting the fire. Yes. I, <laughs> yes, I, I saw that too. But so the point is, is that, you, just is that, is that this type of crazy stuff is going on. Yeah. 
we didn't have those problems here because yeah. like, you know, we, pl- we planned a little bit better. Russia, you know, is complain- they are, they may be um, militarily incompetent, but look at all the equipment that they've saved. You know, they, they still have all these things, you know, the, the, the train people, they kept enough cassette bearings in stock that they could last about a year. But so it my may point, not be us, but not the Chinese. My point in the, in the, in the, in the cassette bearings and all that sort of stuff is Russia is now starting to park trains permanently because they don't have the ability to repair them. Well, don't have the ability and can't currently is, I guess it, they could fix them. They could put, they could put old bearing assemblies in them, but that requires also retooling an entire system and training people how to do it. And like, you know, this is the unintended consequences will bite you in the ass really fast. If you don't plan out what oh, you're doing, you mean like when we give people a mortgage who can't pick up their beer cans, like I was talking about exactly. And Oh, they can't save enough money for very basic minor repairs and everything falls to hell in a handbasket. Exactly. Now, a nice neighbor has got uh, those people down the street and eventually it gets foreclosed on and, well, the property is, value goes down, and yeah. Well, I was thinking about this. You know, this is something else we should talk about some other time because this is this is starting to get a little long. But um, we should talk about you know the, the the consequences of how the U.S. has effectively everywhere you know every everybody in the U.S. for the most part can qualify as long as you're you've got your your act together a thirty year mortgage, right? Mm-hmm. And a thirty year fixed rate mortgage. And that means that that fixed rate is fixed for the entire term of the mortgage unless you decide to refinance it or pay it off, right? Yep. But most of the world doesn't work like that. Most of the world, you have to refinance every five or eight years. Sometimes it's sooner. Some some places like three. So you can imagine owning a house and you borrow money for it, but now five years goes by and you have to refinance at what the new interest rates are. Well, that's just protectionism to the lender. Well, yeah, of course. But it also, I think, is interesting to consider. Again, we should talk about this in depth some more, another time. kind Because of, I think there's a lot of other multi-order effects that adds on how you plan. And it, I think it keeps, I, I think it potentially anyways, potentially. I've thought about it a little bit. But I think it potentially has some interesting multi-order effects on people that, well, I may be able to afford a house now, but well, if interest rates go up and I have to refinance in five years, I can't. Well, so am I going to buy a house if I can barely afford it now? Probably not. You know what I mean? You and I should have a discussion and we should promote it, especially among retirees. Um, a whole discussion about how and why you should or should not buy a home. I, I agree. But you mentioned retirees. Like in the U.S., you have people giving thirty-year mortgages to retirees. A lot of people. That is nonsense. Yep. I, I have a friend down in Tampa who is not familiar with the villages at all, and I was explaining some things about the villages, and there was no relatability. Could I mean could not even conceive it. They, they have no experience there. Yeah, I've experienced that. And it, it is something that if you are in business, if you do not know what a massive 55 plus retirement community is like and about you don't you you got to understand that thing and and I said yeah I mean a lot of these people when one of the spouses dies they're so screwed because of their mortgage and the 
the reaction was like, what do you mean mortgage? They're retired. I said, no, a lot of these people are buying homes and getting a 30 year mortgage in their seventies. It was like, you got to be kidding me. Said, no, they, they do that. They do that. Yeah. And then they, I mean, they, they we, go rooms to go and they buy their furniture. Well, we've heard about credit. Oh yeah. Well, we've heard about cars going into their eighties that have gotten some of these. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> that's insane. But in other countries, there's no way that would fly. So when, like, like for those of you who are younger and you, you desire to buy a house, always remember that when you buy a home, and this is for the majority of people, we're not talking about your YouTuber who's bouncing around telling you that you're going to get rich overnight in real estate. You know, flippy floppy, flippy floppy, tick tock, tick tock. We're talking about people who they've got a job, they've got a profession, you're, you're hunkering that you're saying, okay, I'm going to live in Brandon for the rest of my life. I'm going to live in Riverview. I'm going to live in Tacoma. I'm going to live in Oklahoma city, Dallas, Fort worth, wherever you're, you're making a choice to hunker down. That's where you're going to be. But when that opportunity comes to go someplace else, that's a cost. It's a lot of costs. So now you say, well, I'm making a hundred thousand dollars a year. I can make 150. So that's a great deal. But you have to sell your home. Is the company going to pay for everything? Like when my dad was transferred from uh, Dallas up to Milwaukee, uh, they came in with wood and they built uh, shipping boxes for everything, everything from the piano to our beds. Every, it was an amazing thing. And they paid for everything and gave him a big, giant moving allowance. I mean, huge. This was about 1960, what was it, 64, 65, 66, whenever it was, something like that. Huge. Companies don't do that anymore. No, not at all. They don't do that. No, and I, I've seen some companies, they would be generous. It's like, oh, $5,000 moving allowance. Like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, quite literally, I'm just, and I'm spitballing fairly closely. My dad was probably given in today's dollars the equivalent of about $100,000, $150,000 moving allowance. Oh, yeah. Bonus, just, just a pure bonus in addition to an executive move. I mean, well, aunt, we well, did nothing. My mother didn't, she didn't have to do anything. And we're talking, you know, these, this is before bubble wrap. This is when they brought in straw and it was, you know, oh, yeah. they boxed everything. And it weren't, these are, these are wooden boxes. These are not cardboard. Oh yeah. Okay. And the, in the cardboard they did bring in, it was that big corrugated stuff. And then I think it was Mayflower that came in. They, they had, we had two semis, two. Well, but the in. other thing is, is, is they also part of the deal was they would, if you couldn't sell your house, then the company would buy it too. Oh uh, yeah. Well, in fact, I think my dad's, he wound up selling the house, but well, the first house I bought uh, was a railroad house. The, the executive, my very first house, which way larger than most people would ever buy for their first home. That I fully admit. Uh, but I'm not th that typical guy. The, uh, it was a railroad house. The guy got transferred, and, and um, he was with CSX. I bought a CSX home. Yeah. But that's the thing. Of course, I'm paying, what, 18% interest for, I had a 30-year mortgage at 18%, and I was happy to get it. Well, welcome <laughs> to the early 80s. Oh, God, it was unbelievable. But, you know, the thing is, is, like, companies used to do stuff like that because, going back to what we were talking about earlier, they were companies that were built on a sound business, that they made a profit, that it was in their best interest to retain good talent. Right. Well, see, like on a 30, they didn't mortgage. say, they didn't, they didn't say, Oh, there's a pandemic. People are shopping online and go, we're going to go and double our workforce. 
because, you know, we need to meet demand. And then they go, oh, well, people are going to go back to not shopping online. Who would have thought? Well, you know, back in the 80s. Now we need to lay off half of our half of our company's employees. Like, you know, I mean, like those types of really stupid, very short-sighted decisions were not made by co- people in these companies. I mean, now granted, like they're poor decisions made in companies everywhere. But I mean, come on. Like, why is it that the entire tech industry is now downsizing to me, none of this, none of this is shocking. They were wasting our money. Yeah, and it comes down to the fact that it's free. They didn't, they didn't have to have a good business plan. They didn't have to actually be good at their job. They just had to show up. And that's the thing. I think the, the takeaway in all of this is that the economy of, of of success by just showing up is over. And and that's it's going to be that way for a while. And and if. Uh, if you're in a, an industry or, or something like that where that's how that's how you've succeeded for the past decade or two, it's you need to sharpen your skills. Because I have no problem saying this. I'm your son. I'm, I'm you're my son, and, uh, and I would hope it's not the other. It's way not around. the other way around. Yeah. No. Although you know, with uh, who knows with uh, I don't know with we, reincarnation, maybe I'll come back. I'll be your kid. Alternate so. universes, maybe. Yeah. So. We're, we're business partners and, and you've been groomed for this for since day one. My point being is I'm not a hard, I'm not an easy guy to work with. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a son of a bitch. There's things that I demand from you and I will, I will uh, get very testy with you and, and, and you with me, we have a business relationship. We park the uh, family stuff aside and that's just the way it is. Uh, we talk about this all the time. People don't sit down and do the basics no. and you've got to drill for skill. And I'm, I'm sorry, for those of you who are listening who think business is easy, it's not. I mean, how many times have you and I both, we also, what do we do now? You know, well, we got we to gotta work it out. It's like, um, you, you, there are things that you do, you call me in for a second set of eyes. There are things I call, I, I just don't see it. I know what I don't. There's technology things, damn it, I know it's here, I can't see it. Right? Absolutely. And, it, and you get angry at that at times, just, we all do that, but you you work it. You work the damn problem. Yeah. I had a great conversation last night. With but if a, you don't have those skills, mm-hmm. if you never did those things and now you're thrown into the fire and you have to do them, you know, you're going to be part of that group of people at Twitter that, Oh, you know, the new owner comes in and says, uh, Hey, we, we want to implement this feature in one week, figure it out. And everybody's is trial by fire. If you couldn't figure it out, you're fired. Okay. You know, that's just the reality of it. Can you perform or can't you? And, and unfortunately there's just way too many people, even people that on paper have really good skills that have no real serious performance benchmarks to judge anything they do on. Yep. You know, I, I, I saw something about this uh, on a forum. Uh, Somebody was discussing, Something about, uh, uh, that's what it was, it was about Twitter. It was Elon Musk and all that. And this person was saying that, you know, they're, they're very scared that Elon Musk's brand of management and performance uh, metrics and um, his, I guess, I don't know how exactly, how the person described it, but it was like, I guess... You know, I guess in in corporate America you'd call it like your you know your your job performance metrics, um, 
and how he's going to bring these things to Silicon Valley. And that's the thing that made Silicon Valley different from every working a job anywhere else and all this stuff. And I was just laughing. I, I saw this and I was like, the, these people are just crying that they're, they're easy goes, easy goes at uh, minimal expectations. Jobs are just going to go away. It's like, well, who, well, duh. In what world does that exist for more than 10 They're seconds? just mad that their free ride is going to go away. Now, granted, like a lot of people work very hard out there, but there is 10 times more people that do almost nothing. And, and that's from personal and anecdotal and, and relationship. And we and have real life experience and experience yeah. and experience from, from, from friends and acquaintances. There's for every one person that works out there, there's 10 people that are freeloading off of their work. And that's, that's totally righteous. So How many people does Zuckerberg let go just uh, today or whatever? 11,000, I think. 11, I, you know, that, and that, in my opinion, that's just a drop in the bucket for Facebook. Yeah. But, but, you know, Twitter, oh, Elon Musk, oh, he's going to, he, he looks to, to lay off half of their workforce. That's it? I, I, my, my personal opinion is that's just a start because, I mean, uh, you look at WhatsApp. I mean, the guys who created WhatsApp, I mean, when they sold it to Facebook for billions, whatever it was many years ago, what did they have? Like, I think 20 guys in the entire company? Like, nuts. Um, what, Figma, the company that sold to Adobe, I think their core team was like 40 people. And that's a company that sold to 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 Adobe for what, $20 billion or something? Yeah, you like, know, I had a guy in Tampa the other day ask us, uh, ask me about the total number of people we had and what we're doing and everything else. And he was like, oh, well, you're just small fry. I just kind of like, I just wanted to laugh. Say, yeah, you're right. We're, we're small fry. And when we sell this thing out for $100 billion, <laughs> I mean, come on. It just, it just People just don't have any concept as to how many people it really takes to build a business. It needs good people who actually work and there's a lot of fluff. Just in well, there's a tremendous amount of fluff. Fluff, fluff like, is not what gets doesn't get the job done, folks. Cannon fodder does not win a battle anymore or a war. No, absolutely does not. Those days are done. Uh, did they ever even exist? No, they didn't because you know I remember I got you know, I mean to some degree they existed, but not in the way that people think they. Okay, did. so I I gotta say this. I, you know this story, folks. If you haven't heard this before, and we'll get out of here. Uh, in the Revolutionary War, we had a thing called the Green Mountain Boys. Look them up. They were basically domestic terrorists. Who were they? They were guys in Vermont and New Hampshire, and they were just they were going out and shooting the uh, British and then running. They were they were doing a- ambush attacks, ambush attacks, basic basic military stuff, right, basic stuff that we do today. This is what you do. This is why the Russians are getting slaughtered by the Ukrainians. There's a lot of it, things, but it, it has to do with non-commissioned officers. Oh, by the way, my buddy yes last night. I said they don't have any non-coms. We were going. So what, what does that mean? Non-coms. What pallets? Pallets. What? Why do you even bring up pallets and non-coms? It's totally not related to this conversation. And just like, oh, uh, yeah. I mean, well, that's that's one no thing. No context. I'll, I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast, but the Russian military does not utilize pallets. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, one and all, the Russian military does not utilize pallets. We know that for a fact, Paul. Why is pallets? <laughs> Why are a pallets key, a key thing? And I'll come back to my Green Mountain. Well, boys. if you know anything about shipping, you will know the revolutionary technology that is the land sea container and pallets, which are a subdivision of that container. 
And, and there's a vehicle they use to move pallets. What's that called? Yeah, it's, it's called uh, forklift. For, forklift, yeah. yes, forklift. But that is one thing you will never We're see. so sarcastic. But here's the thing. People in the West take it for granted because, you know, in most people's lives, there's been pallets everywhere. I mean, a good example is you talked about moving, mm-hmm. uh, house moving. Well, they built pallets on the spot. They did. For furniture and all that stuff and they put them in the box truck right so they did and there was a forklift there was a forklift (laughs) so they built the pallets on site because having somebody else build your pallet was not something that you did back then too easy this was that was a very executive move but yeah i I remember that like it was yesterday but so but even in your lifetime like pallets are a very common tool for the, the 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 entire distribution system of goods. I mean, dad's trucking company, my God, they had acres of pallets and they had Absolutely. guys who were making pallets and repairing pallets. And, and by but, God, they better be exactly right. Cause that forklift, if you, if it was off, boy, you had a mess. Standardization of basic stuff, right? Oh yeah. The problem in the Russian military is you will not, you will not see forklifts because they don't use pallets. They use their military supply boxes like it's like it's the, the like it's the nineteenth century. They have like five or something sizes of boxes, and they Tetris them. Thank and of course the game Tetris was also invented by Russian, just FYI. So it's fitting. Um, they Tetris these things onto trucks or train cars or whatever. Not joking. So where we can go, hey, uh, let's go get you know, any random thing out of a supply depot and you load it on a pallet if it's not already on a pallet to begin with and you put some saran wrap or, uh, you know, the other other uh, uh, pallet, yep. pallet constriction material, uh, you throw it on an airplane, you put some uh, uh, ratchet straps so that it doesn't move around and you can move a pallet of anything to the other side of the planet in 12 hours. Doesn't matter what it is. It has to be stable. Yes, yes. But the point is, is that that with a minimal amount of effort and a minimal amount of uh, specialized equipment, you can take an M777 howitzer or two and all the necessary equipment and a ton of artillery shells and the guys to run them, put them in a C-130 and send them to Kathmandu and offload them at their regular airport with a regular old forklift and... You can, that's, you can do it. No, no, no. What do the Russians have to do? Oh, they got to carry their boxes around and, you know, where's the little peons to carry your boxes? And I said that last night, I said, look at some of these Russian, where where they've captured sites. You can see they just back the truck in and just push it off. There's, there's, there's munitions everywhere. Who would even want to go in there to pick something? And my buddy like, no, no. So what is that? That has nothing to do with anything. Well, so it just has to do with logistics. I mean, it's it's really simple. Like if you're if you're if this goes back to like the machine tooling stuff and and what I made a, I think I made a comment earlier about you know the Russian the entire Russian world works on on the phrase if it ain't broke don't fix it. Sometimes that is just doesn't even make any sense. You and, mean like now dragging out the old T's? Uh, what 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 are they dragging out the uh, T? Um, the old tanks? What number? Well, they're dragging out T sixty twos now. Those are like 1960s and 70s. Yes, I mean they're they're usually named after the year that they were brought into commission. So T62s would be in the 60s, and they got how much rust and 
Eh, it, de- it depends, but but T sixty twos are. I, you, ca- I can't keep going down the rabbit holes, but point is, another day pallet, we'll talk about the Russian tanks. Guys. Yeah, t- tanks are a whole nother thing, but the pallets. Are y'all loving Russian, this? Russian industry <laughs> runs on pallets. Russian military does not. They don't even have the trucks to do it. If you look at our trucks, like we have grommets or not grommets, but uh, tie downs on the beds of trucks that are designed to take pallets, right? Because you have to secure your stuff. How do Russian trucks work? It's just a flatbed. You throw your boxes on. And so when you throw your boxes on, you can always get your soldiers who are there just because it's just manual labor. So it's it's cannon fodder. Exactly. is what I was referring to. You say the the days of cannon fodder are done. So you're just not going to throw a bunch of troops out there, you know, like the... uh, the uh, well, the British were going to stand in line, and and or the Civil War, we're going to stand in line and shoot each other. Those days are done. Okay, you dig in foxholes, you dig in trenches. No, those days are days are done too, because we'll just fly our drone over and drop a hand grenade on you and blow your your keister to kingdom come. I mean, the it the technology is there. So smart people, smart people in war are going to win. Dumb people in war are not going to win. And and you can have ten million people in China. You can have a billion people. Guess what? We can light it. We can light that candle up. Both both ends in the middle and everywhere else, and you're done. And that was my point to my buddy there. I was like, dude, you have no idea what's going on. Just because you stayed at a Holiday Inn Express doesn't mean you know how government really works. Yes. But the pallet thing, I think, is just an amazing microcosm of... It's not just how screwed up it is. There's that. It also goes into the levels of corruption, like... They, These are all they can't points. even we talk about they that. can't even upgrade the basic like distribution systems in their military to have more modern vehicles so they can leverage forklifts and pallets and and these sorts of things like there's just so many what kind of car does little driving he uh, a custom I don't know what the name of the company is it's a Russian company that makes vehicles I don't know oh they so oh I thought he was no they, they make their own vehicle they did okay yeah, so it's, it's a big deal. But I guess, I, to me, like... Of course, was, there's a famous video of... The, I thought it was a BMW, but I might no, be wrong. No, it's, they make their own vehicles now. But there is a famous video of, of Putin being shown this vehicle, and uh, I think it was Shoigu or one of these oh, other yes, guys. yeah, yeah. I, and, yeah. I remember their vehicle. And they, yeah, walk, yeah. and they walk out to, sh- to look at this yep. vehicle, and somebody left the passenger front door. Was, was, it was still locked. So they... It, you know, when you pulled on the handle, it didn't open. So the guy pulled on it like extra hard, thinking like maybe there was something wrong with the door or something. Yeah. He ripped the handle off. I remember that. And the the look the look on their face was like, oh god, because they knew it was all on video. <laughs> and the guy like reaches in and hits the unlock button manually. Anyways, point is, is like they're not. He, he's in a gulag they're, somewhere. They're not right great. Now. They're not great, but they do make their own cars. Now the question. I forgot about that. Now what's funny is like the com- uh, the Lada, you know the company one of the company russian companies that makes cars um they reintroduced their model that doesn't have a radio and like a whole bunch of other electronics i didn't know that i think they were shipping cars with no airbags for a while because the japanese weren't sending them airbags there you go <laughs> so we'll wrap this up these are all the data points this is a long podcast and it was we, we just thought about doing this because we haven't done one for a while I've got a friend in uh, in Florida here that uh, he says I, I break your I break your podcast up into uh, twenty minute segments. He drives into work and back and forth, so he, he likes it doing that. 
here's the thing, folks. This is what it takes. This is what it takes to manage a portfolio. This is what it takes to manage a business. This is what it takes to have somewhat approaching an expert level knowledge on anything. Yep. You have to dig into it. And it's the reason why I say things like I'm a lifestyle business and business is a lifestyle. So with that, I'm ready to get back to work. What about you? Let's go. We're done. Adios. We're done.